Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show, where we talk about improv and creativity and art and sometimes the Utah jazz. You are listening to an episode of The Artist's Brain, where we interview some of our favorite artists. And today we are talking to someone who is so special to me. She is one of my favorite improvisers, one of my favorite people, and the single most influential mentor in my life outside of my parents. She's she's just a real special one. And I think when you listen to this, you'll understand why. I'm so excited for you to be able to listen to this interview with the wonderful Jet Eveleth. You may know her from the world-class improv team, The Reckoning, her Vegas show, Absinthe, Clown Church LA, or if you listen to the podcast, you probably know her as Storm Chaser's first improv coach back in 2013 when we were babies. Let's be honest, some of us are still babies. Please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Jet. She's the best. You're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. I like the curtain set up like there's a window there, but there isn't. Well, that's actually a um, mosquito net. Oh. Whoa, oh. what? Do you need that in your in your place? Are you dialing in from... Uh, South America or somewhere in the the Amazon or something? It's called the Central America. It's different. Okay. Okay. I'm not bragging, but mosquitoes love me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so good to see you. I love your face and I love your hair and your voice and your general person. You're just like my favorite. Have you guys done a few of these yet? We're seasoned professionals. Be okay if I was your first too. Yeah, we totally haven't messed up at all so far, Jen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no mistakes right. to speak of, except for our first guest. I didn't record the podcast. So <laughs> I had to do it again. <laughs> well, hopefully, there's someone you love, so you get to see twice. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a really great way of thinking about it. We got to go on a second. We got to go on a second <laughs> date. It's all good. I actually think that's like a cool experience. You should, I mean, doesn't that show us that we shouldn't do anything we don't love? That if you're like, oh, we didn't record, we got to do it again. But that's great. If you hate doing it again, it means you didn't like the process. She's just ready with like beautiful life advice at all times mm-hmm. and pleasant. <laughs> I'm not good at, I'm not good at suffering, guys. I'm just, that's, that's my weakness as a person. I'm not good at suffering. Well, very rarely does suffering serve any valuable purpose. So I think that's a good a good way to approach life and here's a fun thing that's like i like discomfort and i like a little pain but that's different than suffering i love a good workout right two of two out of the three of you get me you know but like <laughs> for sure me i get you i think she called just called one of us fat but i'm not sure no 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 she would never shame a person she just said that one of us couldn't relate right yes. okay sure and besides you cannot work out and be skinny and be unhealthy I'm, ta- totally. I'm talking to one of you right now. <laughs> I worked out this morning. I just want everyone to know. No, I know this group is kind of a, a physical group. That's why I, I would never say that to, to any group that was like, we don't move. I'd be like, how dare you? How do you, um, because you said you don't mind a little pain, but you don't want unnecessary suffering. And I've been thinking about this a lot. So how would you define those two things? 
And like, what role do they play? Why are they different to you? It's everything to do with your state of mind. If you're in discomfort and pain and you're like, oh, wow, this is living, right? Then there's no suffering. We all have that. You know how in shows, you still have nerve endings. So when someone slaps you, you're still feeling it, but it never hurts. And then later you have a bruise and someone's like, how'd you get that bruise? And you're like, it was in a show. And they're like, whoa. And you're like, it's over. I don't really remember it. It's because you were in a state, such an altered state. I mean, let's go all the way here. Let's look at someone like Jesus Christ. Did he feel the crucifixion? I don't know. You know, I'm not sure. He wasn't suffering though, but I bet he felt those nails go in. So he felt pain, but he wasn't about unnecessary suffering because he was an enlightened person. If he existed, yes. That's like <laughs> okay, one of the great. most amazing perspectives I've ever heard on the crucifixion. And I'm a, I go to church all the time and no one has ever approached that from that standpoint. And you just blew my mind a little bit. That's kind of amazing. Sit back, listen up. It's going to be a great one hour. <laughs> <laughs> How do I join the church of jet? Is there, I mean, are you taking, so like a, a ceremony I need to go through or. Yeah. It's a lot of psychedelics. Are you ready? Whatever it takes. Jet is like one of the few people that I was like, thank goodness she has good intentions because if she didn't have morals, I'm pretty sure she could start a cult and make a lot of That's money. That's a really good point. But she won't because she has morals. But she The thing I get the most, that's the thing I get the most in my life is you could be a cult leader. Thank you. People, people tell you that a lot? Yeah, like way more than I'd like to admit. But hey, fuck it. You know what? It's because you have presence, you're smart, and you know how to break people down, but you would never do it for to for the benefit of money or power, which is what cult oh, leaders thanks, do. Man. What about being sexy? Is that usually a part of being a cult leader? Absolutely. <laughs> it usually is. Yeah. Yeah, you're onto something. Like I do think directors have a thing I have I identify a little bit of as a director, which is we like to manipulate for a purpose. So almost I would never tell an actor what to do, but I might coax them into something that I think would be good for them, but I let them believe it's their idea because you're so much more present if you got there yourself. If you, if you carved the way, it, you know, you, you, all, you guys all know, if you somehow got from A to B on your own, you own it. But if someone tells you to go to B, at least for me, if someone tells me to go B, it's not mine anymore. And there's not that presence underneath it. So I have to let them believe they got there on their own. And they did get there on their own. But I, I gave them like little hints, you know? So you can use it for directing, but you could also use it for cult leading, I suppose. Yeah, it's crazy. Same skill, different side of like a double-edged sword, I guess. And using it for play pretend when none of the pain is real and, you know, it's all for fun is, I think, a great way to funnel that energy. I was actually thinking about early Storm Chaser rehearsals and you telling me that I was in too much pain sometimes. Yeah, right? yeah. And it's interesting because Storm Chaser and the name even came from rehearsals with you and the idea of moving into discomfort and enjoying discomfort, but that being in too much pain about it was a different treatment. Yeah, branch. like if we were going to call that suffering, maybe I should have called it suffering. It's exactly what we're talking about. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. I see way too much suffering on stage. And that's why no one's laughing. Because we're letting the audience know on some subconscious level, I'm actually really also in pain. And so just what we were talking about right now when we first started, which is if you didn't enjoy, the, if you didn't enjoy that first podcast you recorded that you forgot to record, <laughs> that you sat through, if, if you didn't enjoy it truly, 
you would know in that moment because you'd go, oh, we got to do it again. So on a deep level, you did not enjoy it. Well, the audience can sense that when they're watching somebody in a state of flow or when they're watching someone plow through something they think they're supposed to do because it will lead to happiness at the end. Maybe this is just because I watched the new Pixar movie, Soul. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they actually, they talk about this state of flow. And, and in the film, it's kind of cute, actually. It's like, when you're in the state of flow, when an artist is in a state of flow, they actually like transcend to a different plane, which is kind of, which is kind of cool. But I, I want to, I'd love to hear your thought of like that flow. Like, what does that mean to you to be in a state of flow? I think it, for me, it's been the motor of my life is to figure out how to be in a state of flow. As much of the day as I can spend it in the state of flow to me is the meaning of all of this, or maybe not the meaning, but the ride of it. That's why I kind of don't live a super traditional life. It was because I think that a state of flow, a state of presence is more interesting to me than things or accolades. In order to be in the state of flow, you have to prioritize it. It has to be a, prior, a priority before life. Because if, if, even, if, even if we take the word flow, it's a current. So you could so easily get into another current, you know, because you haven't, you haven't figured out where your B is if you're A. And if you're like, there's B and I think this would be a fun path to, to swim. If you don't swim towards that sunset, you will easily get pulled off in the next current. So you have to, strangely, in order to be in a state of flow, you have to be very, very disciplined with your time. <laughs> well, that's something I've been meaning to ask you is that, is this something that you're naturally, or maybe we're all naturally attracted to, but the discipline of that, you know, when did that start in your life? Was there a moment when you realized this is how you want to live or has it always been there that you're like, this is more important than things. It's more important than awards or achievement to, to be present. Are you like saying that? I don't have any awards or achievements? Um, <laughs> cause I don't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think on some level, think about when you were a little kid, what you love doing for most of us, that doesn't change. When I think about who I was as a kid, you know, my science fair project in seventh grade was does meditation improve study habits? I would have people take a very simple quiz. Then I would put them into a state. Like I would speak them through a meditation like talk them through one. And then I would give them a similar exam, you know, of a similar challenge, like a ch level of, of being challenged. And that was my science fair project. So I think we are just who we are. And I, one of the ways I think I learned about the power of time and what you can do with your time is at summer camp because summer camp was a schedule and I loved it. It was, you know, eight o'clock that it went off and it was a sweet sound because I knew I had to get down to the lake and jump in. If I was going to get a point from my tribe, the, 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 the summer camp was split into two tribes and my grandmother had gone to the summer camp. So we were all the same tribe you stay in the same tribe as even your relatives. So it's like, oh, it's in your body, you know? I mean, I, I truly believe who I am is related in the way we lived maybe plus 10,000 years ago. Like I'm like, I love living small, connected. The idea of a lot of people knowing me or knowing what I'm up to is very strange to me because I'm like, but I couldn't know more than a hundred people. And then after I would go and jump in the lake which is so funny all these years later doing Wim Hof and being like, oh, I did this when I was a kid. We would jump into a lake and that's how we woke up. 
I stayed at the summer camp for 10 years. I became a counselor in training, a counselor. I'd still jump in the lake because I got more points as I became a counselor. You, you earned more points for your tribe. You know, and the spirit of competition, as you guys know, is the basis of all good clown work. So it would be like, you know, tug of war and singing competitions, like dumb stuff all throughout the week. Uh, capture the flag. That's how you earn points for your team, your tribe. And it's kind of funny enough, Wim Hof calls it ice tribe, you know, and it's like, we belong to a tribe. He's a big believer in, in figuring out your tribe, your, your source that isn't social media, but that is real human beings. It, for us, it's an improv team. You know, for somebody else, it's their sports team. For somebody else, it's their church. Whatever it is, you got to find your small community of like-minded people who want to live in a way that is meaningful. Anyway, I digress. So I just remember everything was scheduled. Then we'd eat breakfast. Then we'd go do our chores. And even chores, it was like fun because even if you were cleaning the bathroom, you were doing it with your friends and you're like kind of commiserating together. Like, we got the bathroom today. And I realized that like there is no good or bad. It's like if everyone is in this right spirit, it's so fun. See, you've, you've achieved what I think people want, which is to feel present and to delight and be joyful in anything that they're doing and you're moving towards that. And I just, oh man, I love that. I like want to delight more in everything that I do. You do. I'm trying. I feel like you're better at it than I am. Wow. Well, yeah, thanks. because I just feel like she, you're pure love. I still am like boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. <laughs> hey, it's good though. I actually feel like being friends with you has taught me a lot about boundaries because I'm this big, as a kid and even into adulthood, this big ball of, ah, oh, I love people and I want to be over here and I want to do this, you know, and to be able to um, discipline myself and respect my own boundaries and other people's boundaries is, is like a hard learned well, lesson. A true, true, true introvert who can really pretend to be an extrovert. <laughs> so yeah, I'd been thinking about that very question of like, I wonder if summer camp really got me into this idea of a rigorous schedule is actually what creates freedom for me. I don't know for other people. I couldn't even guess what other people need. Why would I? But for me, it would be literally every day is identical and I do the exact same thing every day. And I've even found recently that I've been taking the same walk with my dog. I used to let her choose where she went. And now I'm like, no, I'm just going to go the way that this, I get the view of the mountains the whole time. It's a pretty one. And I find peace in doing the same walk. That's really mm. interesting to me. Oh, go ahead, Fish. Did you have a thought? No, no, no. I was just interjecting an emotional noise. Okay. Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> I just think, it, I think it's interesting that you find, you know, peace in sameness, but you are also like, that seems counterintuitive to someone who does improv where it's never the same. Well, yeah. I mean, I have a theory that you shouldn't, you shouldn't chase the same thing in scenes. You guys know you've been playing long enough. You guys are repeating scenes, right? It happens. You're like, we are in this again. And in that moment, you have to be very bold to make new moves and to not do things that you know, get laughs. Because the dilemma of that is if you start finding sort of too much of a groove in, in what is easy and improv, then you're not being challenged. And it's you being challenged that creates the tension and the beauty. You know what I mean? If you're at all, I'm not saying you guys could even be capable of phoning it in, but you know, sometimes we do stuff that's easy and then we're not rising at all. So, and so I have, it's so, it's so, and, and I find myself going through waves of finding something that I'm, that's feels really fun and scary 
And then there comes a point when it stops being that way. And then I'll keep doing it for a little while and be like, wait a second. And I'll catch myself. But it, it's like a constant roller coaster of that, I think. Yeah. We've all been there, right? And I bet it happens in all art forms where you have the opportunity to just do it again. I, I even see it in teachers sometimes that they'll say the same you know, set phrase to teach something. And I'm like, oh, but the problem in that is that they're not being challenged anymore. And when we're not being challenged, as we know, we lose the state of flow because the state of flow, you know, coined by who? some professor at um, Claremont, right? That's where my roommates both went. And so a, a professor of positive psychology, I guess, coined it, not that it didn't exist forever. But I guess there's like two main things that you need to be in the state of flow. One, one is um, to be at a challenge that is a level of challenge that is just exactly where you are at. It's not way above you because it's way above you. You can't even do the thing. And if it's way below you, then you're, you know, you don't need that um, amount of focus, I suppose. And then the other thing is I don't remember, but there was another thing to get to the state of flow. Pick up and maybe it will come to me. Yeah. My, uh, my roommate would know for sure. She's a professor of positive psych. But um, so I think about that all the time. And we talk about that because I'm doing a program right now on alternative medicine. And I love it because it's perfectly challenging. You know, if I was in a Western medicine, if I was getting an MD, I would be over my head. But because it's like um, exactly where, and maybe also because I've kind of have a, a, a relationship with it, to be honest. It's something I've read about. I've studied it for really 20 years. So coming into it, it's like perfectly challenging where I get into the state of flow learning it. Wow. And I love being in the state of flow. That's my thing. And believe it or not, by being in the state of flow, it helps me be more in the state of flow when I go into clown again, because I, I've just my body's just like, I know state of flow. So I'm only doing stuff in my life that puts me in a state of flow. So why does flow work so well in art and in performance? Why will an audience respond to someone who's performing in flow? Well, I, I heard once heard Eckhart Tolle say that the reason we watch professional sports is actually just to watch people in a state of flow. It's not even the sport itself. And I love that idea. Then it's like, yeah, Utah, go jazz. We're the best there ever was. And Natasha is currently wearing a Utah jazz jersey, just so everyone knows. And I 100% agree with this because I'm like, I don't, it's not, they're playing a game, but they're, what's interesting to me is how present they are, how emotional, how emotionally involved they are. Ugh, it's great. Well, and there is something to that flow that, is sort of unexplainable. We'll talk about Mike Conley on the Utah Jazz because the Utah Jazz are the best NBA team in the world. Everyone knows that. But Mike Conley last season was out of flow. He shot a bad shooting percentage. He wasn't finding his spots. But so far this season, I mean, the dude's he's scoring like crazy. He's, and you can tell the way he moves, the way he finds his spots, the way he shoots – He's just locked in and it's beautiful to watch. And it's kind of this intangible, like he's the same guy. He's playing the same sport. He's doing the same things. But right now he's in it. And it's really cool. I think theory cool. is exactly what Jet said, which is like last year he was playing under a new coach with a new team. And it was just a little bit outside of his comfort zone in a way that he couldn't access that flow because it was a little bit too much. And now that he's gotten used to some of those quirks and how different it is, he's now able to play to a higher ability. 
You guys should, you should interview him next. I would love that. Mike Connolly, if you're out there, get in here, buddy. When you were talking about things were just a little above his reach for flow, I'm wondering how we expand our reach. Because as I look back on our improv journey, I feel like we would do moments where we would like be not quite hitting it, quite hitting it. And then we would like lock it in and we'd have a, a run of like really great shows. And then we would be like, oh, let's try something else and get a little bit better. And then we would, we'd fall out of flow again as we were reaching for this new thing. And then we'd reach it and kind of click in and we'd have a string of good shows. So I guess I'm wondering like, can you, do you have to elevate that level and fall out of flow for a second to get better? Or can you progress without ever leaving flow? I think you have to fall out of flow. I think it's important to talk about this because so many people will um, stay in what we talked, what I talked about earlier, what's easy, and then they'll fall out of flow that way. So instead you have to challenge yourself. I guess it's a lot like um, Tiger Woods, that whole theory when he was playing and then he's learned a completely new technique and he dropped for a while and everyone's like, oh, I guess he's out. This is very early in his career, I guess. But when I heard about how he did this and learned and then came back as the greatest golfer of all time, I remember that really touched me because I was like, I'm willing to do that for what I love, which is, is to learn an approach that brings me closer to it and to fail to what appears like failure for a while. Like I'm willing to appear that way, which is so good for us. It's so good for our souls to not be, to not think that we are, we are the face of what it is. Like we are just the puppets of flow, but we think that we're creating flow, but flow is creating us, you know, and it's such a better way to live. And so I, I love, like I had major, I don't know what you'd call them, backswings, like an improv. Like one, the biggest one for me is when I decided I didn't want to joke anymore. And I remember that moment when I decided it, I would think it was, I just watched a TJ and Dave and I realized they, I mean, I kind of knew they didn't joke, but in that show, I just remember like crying and laughing, like from such a deep place, those, la those laughs, those belly laughs, but also having real tears in the audience. And I thought, I want to do this. So I had that conversation with myself of like, how do I do this? How do I do this quality of, of work? And I was like, I have to not joke. And I remember how scary that was because that means I can't just do something that feels safe in the moment to get a quick laugh from the audience to know that I'm okay. And so I, I think I took a real dive for a little bit of just only playing. And when, when I say joke, you guys know what I'm talking about, but maybe for listeners, it's like doing something that you the personally think is funny that you know will get a quick laugh, but isn't true to the character, doesn't further the scene, doesn't create more of a world, you know, and at the cost of it often, most of the time, it's only at the cost of something because what happens is it lets tension out. And tension is secondary to the beauty and the truth that you're creating, but tension is the energetically what's happening, right? As you're building this, and as you blow this bubble up, you blow this bubble up, you're letting out air by making a joke. And it's like, no, 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 let it, let it get so big that it bursts on its own. You're, you don't have to be the one that regulates when it when the I like air that comes metaphor. Out. So it's like if it's a balloon, you're letting out a little bit of air to make some noise instead of really just letting it fill and pop. Yeah. And those you guys know those big pops, right? When they pop and you're surprised too because you didn't know when it was going to be hilarious. But guess what? Shit happens. Like you do not. Could you imagine in my daily life? I was like, I have to plan a time today where something goes bad where something goes wrong. It would be insane. Like I promise you I will run out of gas. Like that's life or like I'll stub my toe. Like that is life. So in improv, I think it's so funny that people, that we do, we all do it. 
that we create stuff to go wrong. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not you. You don't have to do that. You create everything to go right and you will find out what goes wrong. Someone will trip when they enter. Somebody will say something wrong. That's what you play with. But you don't say something wrong on purpose because that means that there's a leader and then you're controlling. And we know that with that control, you can't like find the current you truly want to swim in. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I do want to swim towards the sunset, but how I get there, I don't know. You know what I mean? I'm not sure how I'll get there. It takes a lot of faith. I think this is a, can be a very different way of creating. I was doing some watercolor painting with some friends recently. And my friend was saying that it's hard for him to approach a painting without almost having a clear idea of what the whole thing is before he puts the brush to the paper. But I was much more comfortable just kind of putting something down on paper and then seeing what came to me as I was going. And I think that's probably because of my experience with improv. I think that concept can seem so foreign to someone who's not yeah, used I to it. Yeah, I feel that when I'm writing because people talk a lot about, you know, if they're writing something, a lot of times they know the ending and then they sort of work backwards. And that's something that I actually feel a little stifled by. And if I allow myself to listen to what's already happened and is down on page, it almost reads the same because they're like, okay, you, here's the ending. And then I'm going to drop all these hints so that we move towards that. And instead I'm like, I'm going to start at the beginning and then I'm going to listen to myself as I go, because I'm already dropping hints about something that I don't know is going to happen. And it feels a little bit more like improv, or at least it feels like the same brain to me. Yeah, man. I mean, now that I'm thinking about all the analogies I've already painted, <laughs> I feel like in a way, I want to be careful what I said at the very beginning when I was like, oh, you know that you want to get from A to B and you don't want to be pulled out of that. I mean that more, I, I'm careful about destination stuff. You know, I'm even careful about anything that where people say, because I identify with what you're saying on a tall show of like, I don't want to know the ending. Like that would be my, the worst project for me. It's almost like, here's the ending now create. I'm like, Oh, yikes, because I want to be able to be in free flow. And so I'm even careful of when I use that analogy of like finding your own flow of like, I don't even know if I want to swim towards the sunset. I just want to feel the water and listen to the water and then, then go from there. Like I really want to feel what the water is like, where, where it would be the most fun to swim. <laughs> so like, I take that, I take that analogy back. I was listening to, um, to Alan Watts. And he was like, what's so great and what's so spiritual about like music and dance is that the very nature has nothing to do with destination. And you know it because you don't become um, a, gr a cr great composer by writing the fastest music, you know, because it's not about speed. You don't be, you're not the best dancer because you got from A to B the fastest. You know what I mean? You're like, wow, Michael Jackson, he really moved across the stage the quickest. You know what I mean? It's not... <laughs> It's like, oh, there's no destination. It's play. And game is there's no destination. So he talks about how spiritual game is. And I think that's why as improvisers, we love game. Whatever that game is, we love it as friends when we're just hanging around. The minute we see a pattern, we all want to keep playing the pattern until the pattern bursts. Yeah, this is kind of interesting. It brings up how you discuss wanting to improve whatever your craft is. Even using the word improve becomes tricky because it's like, saying I want to become like a better improviser, it says there's a destination to get to, which in itself searching for almost defeats the point and takes you out of it. So is there a way you think about that in terms of like exploring a craft? Is it more, a, is it more exploring than 
improving? Oh, that's a great question. And I agree. It's always about exploring. And for me, the ways I explore stuff is by making things interdisciplinary, blending things that normally don't, don't blend. Like if I have a dream, I'm like, oh man, what is that trying to tell me? Because now my dreams are affecting my art and we want that, right? We want like states, altered states. I think that's why I'm interested in psychedelics is I'm interested in shaping my art through exploration. So, you know, my dreams give me information or give me um sort of hooks to play with if I'm going fishing, you know, and same thing with um, psychedelics, same thing with my meditation practice. It's ways to Do explore. you ever find yourself having any kind of judgmental thoughts about yourself in that way of like, oh, I need to be better or that wasn't good enough. And what's your self-talk like in general about your performance? Do you have, is that a thing that you need to cope with or does that not come up for you? I've never really had to cope with anything. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are talking about suffering and you're like, no, just I'm living it. (laughs) No, it's, my life is definitely not perfect at all, but I just by nature as a as a human being, I haven't been much of a punisher of myself. So I I don't, that's just my hardwiring of my brain, I suppose. So I don't do a lot of, um, you weren't good enough tonight, but don't think that it's that I walk off stage and go, wow, I was amazing. I don't either. I don't think either. I don't think about myself that much, but I see myself as a bit of a servant to the work because the work is what gets me off. And so if I'm, you know, making sweet love to this work, I don't go home and go, oh, you know, I wasn't good enough or, oh, I was the best. Like, I don't have either of those thoughts. I just go, well, we made love and that was fun. (laughs) Like, I realize what a hippie I sound like. No, I love love this though. And I feel like it's, I, and I wonder if it's your exploration of like we were talking about things like meditation, Wim Hof, psychedelics, because the more that I explore those things, the more crazy it is to me that I would have ever looked mm-hmm. at my face, like as a teenager, I was just thinking about this take. I used to like look at my face and be like, I wish it looked different. Like, I don't like mm-hmm. my face. And now I'm like, this is the meat bag that I have to yeah. go through this life. How could I have ever looked at myself and been like, my face isn't good enough. Like what? It's a face. Um, but, and, but I didn't always think that way. There, there were so many years when I was very judgmental of my body and stuff. And now I'm like, why, what was I, what? It's insane. It's just a body and it's your body. Yeah. I am like, really, I demand a lot of myself. I demand more of myself than most people demand of themselves. I think I demand so much on myself, but I do it as like a loving parent, which is like, you're going to have so much fun in this life if you ring it out. Like I'm trying to ring life out. So when I leave a show, I'm pretty earnest about like most, I would say most shows that I've ever done in improv, they were as good as I was capable that night, but they're nowhere near where I want to be at. Like I'd say right now in my improv, I'm functioning at 20% of what I want to be at. But I don't want to say I'm not content with it because it's what is, it's what, what I'm doing. But like, I hope I live longer because I want to get so much better. So that's what I mean. Like, I I don't want you to think I'm a total hippie where I'm like, that was fun. Like when I say I made love, I just mean sometimes you have, you have sex and it's just like not the best, but you wouldn't think about it after. (laughs) You just be like, what did I learn? 
oh, that was way too controlling for me, you know? And like you learn about saying with improv, like it was too much control. It wasn't fun. So you learn so that it can get better every time. And, and even though it takes dips, like you might have a show that was worse, it's often because you're trying new things. So I'm totally okay with having a crap show because we tried brand new things. That's the risk. That is really us standing at the altar of what we're doing. And we're like giving, we're just giving our little, you know, gifts or sacrifices or whatever it is. It's never a sacrifice. It feels like to me, but we're putting down our flowers and our candy to be like, what do you like? And so that's what it is for me. And like, I will walk away from almost every show and go, I did not, I did not give the best, you know, gift to these gods. I know that, but like, I learned a little more of what they like. Well, I think that's really healthy because it's not like if you have a crap show, like you don't get any points for being like, wow, I suck at improv. Oh my gosh. That was so like, no, there's no, you don't get points for that. It doesn't make the show better in hindsight. And it's certainly going to not going to make your next show better. So having this, like, you know, choosing to focus on like the bad parts and like this sort of like negative outlook doesn't serve anything. So I think if you can, I mean, it's hard because that I think for a lot of us, it's human nature to focus on the bad things. But if you can practice and train that muscle of like, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on the things that I learned. And I'm going to focus on like, how can I get better and not live in this negative state? I think it's a healthy way to, to, to grow. Yeah, because like nothing is that important. And at the same time, everything is super important. And it's like, if you can live in both things, then, you know, you can take yourself out of the equation. But if you're living deeply on one side or the other, you're robbing yourself of, of the chance of actually meeting yourself. What does that mean? Like, I think we kind of get to meet ourselves a little bit in a state of flow. Like, that's where we get to be close to ourselves. And if you put too much pressure on doing something perfectly, you can't be in a state of flow because the, the very tension you feel in your body doesn't allow you to drift and to, to live in that current. But if you also don't care, which means nothing is important, you also can't float, you know? So it's like you have to, I'm trying to put all these analogies together as best as I can, guys. I have this written down somewhere. <laughs> I'm just kidding. When I see people who are really, really hard on themselves, I'm like, oh, you're, you've fallen off to one side, which is you think this matters and it doesn't. Nothing matters. Maybe none of this is real, but equally we can't live in that state all the time. And that a show you have to produce enough adrenaline to get your energy up. To You have to care. So like you guys know, we've all played together. You know the best shows are the ones where we were in deep and we, we accessed our real emotions. So that means on some level, we cared. I, in that moment, thought everything was life or death. Those are my best shows. So I, can I live in the split brain of thinking, yes, this is the most important thing in the world. Improv in the scene I'm in with Pish is the most important thing. I am fighting for my life in this scene. I am fighting for your love. And equally, can I walk off stage and go, what are we getting to eat? You know, like, <laughs> can we, can, can, can I, can I, I almost think you have to look like a, a crazy person to be a great improviser because you can switch off that quickly. You know, like great actors, I assume, there's, I, I would love to watch a great actor who can literally just be like eating a sandwich and then they're like, we're ready for your close-up and they can like put it down, harness the belief that this all matters and that the world is ending and then give the performance of their life. Like I'm more interested in that person than the person who takes four hours to get into that state. Don't get me wrong. That's still a good actor. If they take four hours, who cares? We didn't see them in that four hours of prep. 
but I'm more floored by someone who can turn it on quickly because that means they're actually able to switch back and forth very quickly between everything matters, nothing matters. And that means they're even closer to living in both things at once. I remember you saying something about you know, how, how much is commitment and how much is joy and being like, it's a hundred percent of both. The idea of just, it's that balance. It's just walking a tightrope. And I'm like, oh, that's life too. You want to commit to your relationships, be loving, be in it, but you also need to be able to let go quicker. You can let go the less that you suffer, which is so hard when, you know, in certain, certain life situations, it's like, that's, that's, man, that's a lot. But I guess we're just practicing on stage these, these moments so that when it comes up in life, it's not as difficult, hopefully. Same lessons. It's the same lessons. If you've ever listened to Byron Katie, I think she's brilliant at this because she's able to live like a householder's life. She has a husband and children. She's like, oh, I love my kids. But you know, if they died, that's what happens. And you're like, and I believe it. I totally believe. I mean, she doesn't say it like that. But she told a story about her daughter who was very close to death while giving birth. And the in-laws, her son-in-law's parents said, can you pray with us? And she's like, I'll do it if it makes you feel better, but whatever's going to happen is what's going to happen. And I was like, I believe that's true for her. I believe she's, she's achieved at life what we're trying to achieve for a half hour once a week on stage, which is being able to live in both things at once, which is, I love my daughter dearly, but I will never fight reality. And she was like, I would be sad if my daughter, but I only as sad as my body needed to be. Like her, your body can get, become sad, you know? So you have to listen to the body's sadness because it's mourning a loss. But everything that the mind does is what really creates a suffering, which is five years of mourning after instead of, you know, a few weeks of just being really kind of heavy and then going, all right, well, um, how, what a great run I had with that person. How many of us could love our partner and go, but if they equally said the next day, I think I'm done, we'd go, oh my God, of course you got to do what you got to do. Most people cannot say, you got to do what you got to do. I want you to be happy and I'll be sad, but you got to do. Like, who can say that? This makes me think because I'm in Texas right now at my parents' house. My brothers and sisters have grown up to the point where Christmas looks very different for us. So I spend a lot of time in my house with my parents alone. And as they're approaching the end of their life and me starting to think about the house that I'm in and maybe not having many Christmases left there, I was journaling this morning and I came across this part of me that was really struggling with it because I'm so attached to having this to come back to and realizing that in some way, I need to start, you know, letting them go and letting the next stage of my life be whatever it is. I relate with that really hard. I feel like sometimes I have a tendency to attach like sadness or bittersweetness to things that I think I should feel sad or bittersweet about when I've even moved on more than I thought that I have. And this idea that if something ends, that that, you know, it, it's suddenly tainted and it wasn't like ever good. And so I'm always like, no, like you had all those years and it was magical and maybe, the, but those memories don't go anywhere. And it's like, that's lovely, but whatever's next is also going to be lovely, but I feel you. Your improv team, the reckoning is like my Beatles. They're the Beatles for me. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the early reckoning, the way that I view it is that 
I feel like you probably started out on a path that was like 10 degrees to the right of everyone else. And then over the years just ended up in a very different place. And so I'm very curious about if that rings true to you and how you built the reckoning to be what it is as a group now. I feel so lucky to have come up and done improv when I did it and where I did it because it was the sweet spot in time and space where people were willing to experiment and there were plenty of stages to do it and we got mad repetition. <laughs> so I once was watching Uta Hagen teach on a DVD and she talked about how oftentimes um, she, she was directing this one woman who had gotten way too emotional, way too fast. And it just wasn't realistic. And she goes, I understand why you did that. You don't have enough time to play. So when you get to play, you go from zero to a hundred because it's almost like uncorking a bottle. It's like you pop because you don't, you don't believe you have the time and you want to get to that feeling. You want to get to that state. And she's like, what you need is you need a small theater that you can play at every day. And she's like, and if everyone had that, who was true actors, we would all be able to craft more because we wouldn't think this is the 10 minutes we get to perform and we have to step on the gas. When I saw her say that, when I saw her teach, I went back and I watched improv with that in mind. And I was like, oh my God, people just need more reps. We need more time to play and to figure out how we exist on stage in the most full way. And so I was very lucky because I don't know if it exists or if it will exist where I got to do shows for, you know, what do you need to be an audience? You need the audience to be big enough that you feel their energy, but you actually don't want them to be too big because once the audience gets really big, in my experience, you actually have to um, play to the number. And if the number is over around like 150 for me, you actually have to amp up um, and make things bigger than life. And I like improv personally, that's like close to life. So I like at most, even in a wrap, like, let's say like a wraparound theater, like a half theater at most 300 is what I like to play with. I've, I've done improv for up to a thousand, you know, and I was like, I, I can't feel them. I can't see them. I, you know, the intimacy is lost a little, you know, everyone has their number and even in sex, like what your my number's five, that's the perfect number now, but you, have, you have your number that you're like, Oh, and it's, it's, it's this analogy for sex, which is I don't want more than one because I really want that one person to be someone I really love and I want to be in it with them and I want to be watching them. And if it's more than one, I, I can't really go as deep. I can't get as much as I can out of that one person. And so that's what it is for me with improv where it's like, I want it to be intimate and small and I want to almost be able to see the whites of everyone's eyes. So that, like I said, I, I live, I'm starting to learn about myself. I still feel like I want to live in a tribe. So like, what's the biggest tri a tribe can really be and still know everyone? I was able to grow up in a time in Chicago where we had at least, I mean, audiences were on the regular around 100. So that's like a good amount of energy. And the thing is, the room only held 150 at most. So the room, this is more important that it's a full room. I mean, you guys know if you perform in a room that sits a, a thousand, but only 10 are there, it feels so empty. But if you were in a room that seated 30 and 30 were there, that feels so sweet, you know, because the party is exactly what the party was supposed to be. You're like, oh, this is the right size for the capacity. Yeah, this feels good. So I grew up in a time, we grew up in a time at the, the Regnine where we were playing so regularly and we were just... We love to play. So what ended up happening is we were rehearsing, let's say twice a week and playing early on, maybe just once a week. But then one night we were like, well, 
we're rehearsing in a theater space. What if we open this up to people? And if people walked in, then it would give us feedback on this new thing we're trying, let's say an experimental form. And we opened it up and people started coming in and mostly it was just students. But before we knew it, we had a full house. And at that time that was like 150. And so then now we had two shows and then we started going, well, what if we started playing at bars, you know, and we just started being able to jump around. What if we, I, this little, this other improv theater is opening. I mean, Chicago at one point probably had about 10 to 15 improv theaters, like during that sweet spot where people were just opening tiny little spaces. And then like a bunch of people from The Reckoning played at Second City. So it was not uncommon to go and play a set together. We'd jump in, we could play a set with the people who were playing. So we had more time together. I think that was one of the best things and then, of course, the spirit of the group to push things and to play hard and to not be afraid to fail. And when I found Clown, it was like, oh, this is what the reckoning is doing. Like it, it when people say, how did you find Clown? Michael Bryan from the reckoning had taken an, a workshop for 500 Clown and he said, Jay, I just did this thing. You have to do it. It's so you. And when I did it, I was like, yeah, it's so us. Like the reckoning was all about chasing the belly laugh on some level, like we didn't talk about that, but that's what we were chasing. We were chasing the belly laugh. And we all know that if you get the head laugh, you do it at the cost of the belly laugh, which is, you know, the, the head laugh, <laughs> let sex that air out so you can't burst into the belly laugh. And so it was something we were doing anyway, and it was sort of unspoken. I remember thinking like, oh shit, this is just even more of like what I'd love to do. I'm so lucky that I have a group of people that are all on board and that's so important in, in anyone's improv journey is like, make sure that you're creating with people who, who want to create from the same place. If you all want to attack the mind, attack the mind and the audience will laugh from their mind because you work from your mind. If you want to attack the heart and the guts because you want to hear the laughter from the hearts and the guts, find those people because unfortunately, the way that, that these laughs, like the primal laugh compared to that like secondary laugh, which is like the head laugh, they do unfortunately compete. That's been my experience. So I couldn't be on a team with someone who's super, super heady because they, we'd be a bit, it feels like it would be a bit at odds for fighting for how we're going to let that sound out of the, the um, balloon. Some people like to like squeeze it and let it, and other people want to let it burst, for example, as an, I don't know if we're using this analogy. And so if I want it to burst, someone's squeezing it out. I'm like, what are you doing? but then it doesn't get to burst on its own. And so that I, I encourage people. So the reckoning had that going for it. And we also had TJ Jagodowski as one of our coaches. He took us on for, for no other reason that he was just like kind and was like, Hey, I'd like to coach you guys too. So we had two coaches and that really changed everything to have him. Like, I mean, come on. That was so cool. And I tried to work with you guys on the stuff that he taught me, which is, you know, he did like Qigong warmups, Whoa. you know, like no one else was doing that when I, when I came into improv, like no one else was doing, it. he would do stuff that was all about connecting and truly loving each other. And I remember very early on, he said to, to us, you guys are all really individually good, but that will only get you so far. Like how much can you love each other? And I was like, Oh my God, that's everything. That's everything. Like What's so beautiful to me about improv is we're laughing kind of at two things. We're laughing at the show we see, but we're also watching the show under the show, which is the connection between the players. And there's very few art firms where you get to watch two things at once. And, and it makes the audience so active because they're watching two, and really in a great show, you're watching many things at once, but like two main dynamics. And Blaine Swen from um, Improvised Shakespeare once talked to, talked to me about this idea. And I was like, you're so right. He's like, they're watching two shows. I was like, you're so right. And it's why he said that, that Improvised Shakespeare has a bit of a challenge 
you know, navigating into television because he was like, it kind of robs us of that, that second, that undershow, which is our connection with each other. Because when they're improvising, they're so amazing in improvised Shakespeare and you see them working, you see them focused, you know, it's not work in the way that it's effort, but you see them playing off each other and you see them messing up each other on purpose because that's how good they are. Like that's how good they are is they are literally tripping each other to say, you can handle this. And so to watch that, that's like, that's really eliciting these belly and heart laughs. And then how clever they are. So this is an example of they kind of are able to work on two notes, but I would say even their cleverness is so beautiful that it's not thin clever. It's like they are literally speaking an iambic pentameter and rhyming. That is craft. That is like, whoa, you, they've got everything. How do you think that Blaine cultivates that with improvised Shakespeare? Because they, you know, they have different players coming in and out. And I've seen them in Los Angeles. And even when I, I saw them at the Denver Center Theater when they had a long stint there. And they had players flying in and out of Los Angeles and working with a different group than I had seen them before. And I, I'm like, Blaine's the key because he's, I feel like he is really pushing what improv can be. And I'm curious because you're friends with him, if you know um, what his mentality is on that and like how he, how he pushes the limits and cultivates that. I can say this, but you'll have to cut it out of the podcast. He is physically really, I mean, it's almost abusive what he does with those players. Like, oh he, yeah. He demands so much out of them. And I know that he, he's not afraid to slap them push them around, give them spankings, just <laughs> constant spankings, lots and lots and lots of spankings. Noted. Thank you. This so is, mostly spankings, helpful. a lot of spankings, mm. bare bottom spankings. Okay. Travis, Pish, did you hear that? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I mean, I wish I knew more. I wish I knew more. <laughs> Speaking of spanking, I remember once Jet <laughs> throwing a baby bottle at yes. me and calling me a baby. I, I bought a giant baby bottle to throw at you during scenes. So I could throw it when you made baby moves. They were, you know, moves that were too safe. There's I don't want to watch these baby moves when you're little babies. That was one of our, I, I think one of our first team mantras. Let's not play like babies tonight. Okay. <laughs> what are you little babies? <laughs> I think it taps into some weird subconscious thing where you're like, I'm not a baby. And it's like, well then stop playing. I want to see real tears tonight because we have to override something that tells us that vulnerability is wrong and that it's, um, you know, a society would tell us that that's the baby. And I would tell you guys the opposite, right? If you guys weren't being vulnerable, mm. then you were being little babies. Ugh. <laughs> You know, I have a, a thing in my life where I had certain things I was like, you know, I'd really love to do that. I, I knew when I watched improv, I was like, I really want to be on an amazing team, like a, just a beautiful improv team. And I also had the thought of like, I really want to teach at a college. I think it'd be fun to teach like, you know, movement and comedy at a college. I just had these weird dreams that would kind of come to me and I'd be like, that'd be fun. And so I had things that I wanted to try. I always wanted to be in a Vegas show. You know, I was like, that'd be so cool. But one of the things that I thought would be really fun would be to coach a team that was really great. Like I was like, I would love a team that like I got to do everything I believed in and to see what it would look like with a bunch of players that were really great and like believed in what I believed in. And I feel like with Storm Chaser, I got that with you guys. You know, like I got to have a team that was like, yeah, well, we trust you. I'm like, that's so cool. 
to, to have your trust and to have your dedication and to have your talent for long enough to get you guys in a place where you're like, we're good. We don't need you anymore. I'm like, okay, guys, I get it. I got the letters in the mail. Are you kidding me? I'm sitting here being like, oh, I love it so much that I'm like, give me homework. Now. <laughs> I still, the, the little student in me is like, ooh, I'm bubbling for that. To have you coach us when we were at a place where we were like open and, and hadn't had some other, you know, specific school of thought drilled in or anything was just so special to me. And I, and I still just, it warms my heart even to be, talking to you right now or I'm like yeah anything we'll do anything we just want to be good I love it we're so lucky that we that we had you as our first coach because I think that we all do connect genuinely with the things you're saying and how you approach improv and art and I think that really does connect to all of us but we could have got somebody else we could have got a coach that likes to play from a mind and had ta and taught us to play from our mind and we would be a completely different team today honestly I don't think that I would have sought sought y'all out for storm chaser in the first place if it hadn't been for this i have a very vivid memory of leaving like a level four class at io west and actually maybe it, it was during a break so i went to the bathroom and jet was sitting in the bar by herself like prepping for something and i didn't know her very well at all i think i'd met her one other time but we are just, you know, we talked shop for a second. And I remember her being like, well, what you're talking about, what you're talking about wanting, you're not going to get by auditioning for a Herald team. Like the closeness, the things that you want to chase, you're not going to get that. So you should probably just like make your own team. And she's like, because I, I think I remember you saying a put together team, it can happen, but it's like, a lottery a little bit. Like you might not be put on a team that's going to have that. So you should just put together your own team. And then this happened. So because we ran into each other at the yes. bar. Yeah. Those currents overlapped. I love it. Yeah, man. I mean, I do love taking life by the horns a little bit and being like, I like you, 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 and you. You want to do something? So what's your impulse right now to create with clown and performance? Just trying to do what's safe and what's going to get me money. <laughs> You know what I mean? What I know everyone's going to like. Maybe you can finally get an award or two. You know what? I think you've gotten kind of a lot of awards. And the fact that you're like, oh, I've never gotten an award tells me how little you think about that. Because I know for a fact you've gotten many awards. All right, mom, listen, relax. <laughs> you guys, I heard the Milky Way is going to be gone in about 5 billion years. I don't know if that's the right number. I can't remember anymore. But it's like something like 5 million years, like our entire solar system will be gone. So it kind of puts things in perspective of, oh, this will all be gone. So what do I want to do right now? <laughs> you know, like what's, what sounds fun right now? What sounds lovely and meaningful? So I'm doing kind of work that blends clown and improv together, bringing elements of what I love from both things. And there's a lot of crossover. And it's really through repetition. And one of the ways that I'm figuring it out is by bringing in creative artists from Los Angeles um, that have some sort of background in improv or clown or both and working with them. And with my friend, Michael, who I happen to live with, he loves clown and improv like I do. And we have a similar sort of, sort of taste and vision of the work. And so we're working on this idea of bringing in people. And every time I bring someone in, we shift it a little. And I was talking to a friend of mine who comes from the world of 
I don't know, like space engineering. And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. He's like, that's what coders do is you constantly bring in a new person to figure out if there's any glitches in the system. And I was like, oh, cool. That made me feel really good. And I was like, oh, that's what people do when they really want to refine and define and, and create something because I want to create something. And so I want it to be beautiful. And I need the, the minds of great people to keep coming in and to perfect it. So I'm using all of you guys to like figure out what I love. <laughs> Because, Jet, you have built a small clown community in Los Angeles that is growing and I think has beautiful energy to it. I think if the pandemic wasn't here, it would probably be continuing to grow even faster. I think it's really interesting because it's hard to describe to people sometimes. Yeah. Hey, would you mind if I peed real yeah, quick? Yeah, I also am going to I'm going to do the same thing. Awesome. Perfect. Please, we'll do that. I want to get to the place and I'm working on it where I could die right now and be like, cool, that was awesome. So if I could die right now and be okay with it, what am I rushing towards? I think rushing comes from this idea that if we can accomplish something, then our lives will have meaning and then we can die in peace. But if we know that's not true, can we contemplate the idea of dying in peace right now? That right now would be a fine time to die. It helps unravel the rushing. Wow. I love you. I really want to die a great death. That's probably like my favorite, what I really want to do with this life. Because if that becomes your mission, then life is so fun because you're always ready for your final mission, which is to die a great death, meaning with grace, with gratitude, with a, maybe a joke as, you, as you're out. Like I want to be able to say, I want to be able to die on a joke. Oh, I love that so much. I just watched this documentary about George Harrison and his wife talks about how he just, he was like, how you leave this life is important. And he wanted to leave having practice letting go and being able to let go. And she said that when he went, she felt, she felt that from him, that he was a light and he was like ready to let go. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. That's cool. What if the purpose of living was to die a beautiful death? I mean, all we're doing is changing. We're constantly letting go. Of, of how our body's changing, how the world's changing. And all it seems like it is, is practice to be like, how much can I commit to the moment and then release and commit and release? I saw that today is the anniversary of Pete Maravich's death, Pistol Pete. He was a, a legendary basketball player. And I didn't know this, but in the article it said he died playing pickup ball at a church. And I'm like, that's just so great. Like, of course he did. I would not hate dying on like on stage during a show. During a show? Yes. Could you imagine? Ah, oh, be the best show. I just was listening to an interview with Eric Andre, and this is a little dark, but he always said he was wondering if he could figure out a way to commit suicide on stage. Because I think Andy Kaufman actually considered the same thing, trying to figure out. He was like, there would be nothing better. Wow. Yeah, exactly. It's a, that's a little rough. But it's, it's still important to contemplate death as like a, as not a darkness. Yeah. It's not the opposite of life. It's the opposite Ooh. of birth. Can I try to force a little connection here with, with dying on stage in an improv show and committing suicide on stage? Is it's this idea of like, you have to let the balloon burst naturally, yes. right? You can't, you can't force it. Yes. And, and Eckhart Tolle talks about that because he actually had his epiphany during his almost suicide. And he realized that like, it's too controlling. 
to, to create suicide is, is saying like, I determine this, you're, you're putting the I first in life. The ego is driving instead of saying like, dude, I'm on this ride. The ride will stop when it stops. It sounds a little more graceful, a little more pleasurable. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> I like that. I just argued that not killing yourself is a more pleasurable way of living. I think, uh, the the ride by Amanda Palmer is like this. I think it's like nine minutes long or something. It's this beautiful song that I feel like captures this really well. It's the song sounds very melancholy, but it always makes me feel less alone because she talks about like we're all gonna die. So like just ride. We're riding this ride together, and it's and it's so beautiful. Everyone listen to it. Yeah, it's like I never walk around like oh I can't wait to die. I'm not. You know I think that. <laughs> That is against our hardwiring. It's against our genetics. But instead, instead of thinking like, it might not happen, or maybe I can figure a way around it. I mean, isn't that in some ways what fame is, is trying to figure out a way around death by becoming memorable forever. Be careful with that because death is an opportunity to really live. (laughs) Sorry, couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. Fear uh, never serves you. And so this, this fear of dying is not going to keep you from dying. It it's, might keep you from living Thank you. because you're going to be afraid to do things. But don't kill yourself. But also don't try to avoid dying. <laughs> Yeah, man. I live in clown work. Um, I work a lot on deaths, like having deaths, because I think it's a great physicalization of something that we should embrace in life. But also on stage, part of what makes scenes so boring is that we're all afraid of change and death is an ultimate change. So it's like, if you can embody that, and you guys are great at this, like really full on going for it, wrestling, killing someone, you have the opportunity to come back to life. We all know that now. You can be, be an angel. You could be a ghost. Like there's, the scene is not over when you die. I hate to tell you this. So, so like really allow yourself those great changes. And we know in life that like anytime you've had a big change in who you are, there's a bit of a funeral for who you were. And that's cool. That's so cool to be like, I'm mourning the old me. But now I get to like live in a more full way because I don't want to be a tadpole forever because I won't know what it feels like to jump. Right. We're, we are beginning or we are dead. Mm. There's that, that's just, the, those are your two options. I think wow. it's like every cell in your body is constantly changing. And I, I can't remember the number. I think it's like set in seven years, every cell in your body is a new. Not mine. Not mine. <laughs> I actually, I don't know if we have, this is a totally different tangent yet, but I actually wanted to ask about your, diet and your health journey because it is something about you know it's interesting to me the way you because I, I i know a little bit about the, the things that you take in can actually make your cells live longer which makes you age slower which is just a healthier mm-hmm. way to live so do you mind just sort of talking about that a little bit you guys want me to talk about my workout regime <laughs> all right well first off we've had two arm wrestles lately and i won both of them she did, so. she did. i was exhausted <laughs> from my workouts okay, earlier sure. that day sure i am doing this thing where i do 100 pull-ups a day and then anatasha came over and said do you want to arm wrestle and i was like no yeah. i wasn't going to say no but i just finished a hundred hundred pull-ups uh-huh. yeah whatever sure. not a big thing mm-hmm. yeah okay those of you that are listening jet just showed us her biceps for the past 30 <laughs> seconds very impressive. Small. Okay, wow. Small Small Um, but impressive. Okay, but Travis is correct because I think that you turned me on to health as energy to become a better artist, which is just a huge mental shift for me instead of it being like, 
vanity or judgment or even holding on so hard to life. It was like, a, oh, this is for energy. You guys know, anyone who knows me, I'm an energy freak. That's my, you know what I mean? That's the only real currency. Psh, don't even try to give me money. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm an energy, <laughs> I'm an energy kind of girl. No, but, um, well, I've always been addicted to energy because I know that energy really is super useful in our art form on stage, right? Like you look at someone like Robin Williams and he is plugged in on another level. It shows partly through his energy or what we could say his vibration if you want to be a real new age hippie. I also had the experience of getting really, really sick. And I realized when I was really sick, like I just couldn't be the improviser or the clown or whatever, the performer I wanted to be. And I was like, fuck, all that matters is health. Because I love nothing more than what I do in improv, but I couldn't do it well. And I'm, I'm not one of those people who all go on stage and do an okay show. You know, like it didn't feel right. To, it, it felt like it wasn't fair to the audience. So I am like, I have to say no to shows. Whoa. And I had to rethink my whole life. And that took about seven years. That was a seven year journey. I would say just, I'm just coming out now. It was like, you know what I mean? Speaking of seven year cells, like, I was so sick after about a year living in LA. I got really, really sick when I was living here and, and I got sicker. And then, I, and then I was like, oh, I'll take this job in Vegas because I'll get better. I'll have the health insurance. But I got sicker doing 10 shows a week. Like I just couldn't uh, repair. Then I went away and hid in Portland for a while and I started just the beginning of repairing. Like, you know, I was still pretty sick up there. And so I was like, whoa, like how long can a person be sick for? And I feel like I'm just coming out now where I feel like I did when I first moved to LA, where I'm like, okay, I have focus, you know, and like I can perform and I can, I can, I can amp it up on stage. But like, it was a long journey. And like, I have wisdom now that I didn't have then, but I have like less energy than I did maybe 20 years ago when I used to do improv. Like I had so much, I was a ball of energy. So it's okay. That's part of aging. You know, now I have wisdom over energy, but like, I still think energy is important for what we do. Not only are we like actors, you, you know, as improvisers, but we also have to have our wits about us to be writing the show as we're creating it, we're editing it. And then we also have to maybe like do some song and dance and pull out some poetry or some philosophy out of our buttholes at any moment. It's like, it takes a lot of energy, come to find out. There's a great show that's coming out on Hulu. I think it's January 22nd called In and of Itself. And it's a one-man show that ran off Broadway, 700 performances, something like that. And it's um, A Man Who Does Magic. And it's a solo show. But it's really more just like a one-man show. And it, the magic is not secondary to it at all. It is still primary, but it's not what we think of when I say like a magic show. Sort of like, sort of like um, Natalie's show with Nate. It's like a clown show, but it's like not really what most people think of as clown. It's just like, it's, it's performance art and it's, it's like better acting than you see anywhere else. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. She's talking about Natalie Palomides. Is that how you say her name? She has a, yeah. a show on Netflix called Nate and I uh, highly recommend for sure. Yes. Yeah, I think it's very connected to the kind of work we do, which is like vulnerable, but also silly as F, you know what I mean? Just like so silly and irreverent. And you're like, whoa, can you blend these? And it's like, she can. So he has a bit of that too, where it's like, this is has such an emotional tone, but at the same time, he blends it with, with magic, which you don't expect. He said that after shows, he feels like he just took the SATs and went to a funeral. And I was like, oh, that's very apparent. If you know anything about the work we do, you are, you, you make a trade, you trade your energy for the thing you love. And so I felt like I just didn't have that energy. I went a long tangent there, but then 
health became even more important to me. And I started doing tons and tons of research and putting all my time and, and money into getting healthy because you're totally right on Natasha. Like if somebody thought I was a health freak for health sake, they're wrong. Like it's always for art, you know, it's like the last and final um, identifier I have. Like I don't, I don't really identify as much. Like I don't even identify as a, a female. Like I don't identify really, you know what I mean? Like I, I, there's just so little, like, I, I know I'm white, you know what I mean? But I don't really identify, like, someone's like, you're white. I'm like, oh yeah, I am. But like, there's not many things I f- identify as, <laughs> you know, but I do still have a small little attachment to artists. I'm like, I feel like that's what I am. I love to create. If I'm not creating, who am I? Even when that was taken away, I was like, oh shit, I, but I health, I got to be healthy to even exist. And so I've tried everything, as you guys know. <laughs> who know me, I've tried like everything. And the cool the thing I will do is I'll do something hard because I'm like, you don't get true data unless you do it a hundred percent. But because now that I study Chinese medicine, I, I try to do a lot of the Chinese medicine stuff so that I can get true data so that I can share that to potential patients. Because if I'm not taking those herbs and I'm not eating that diet and I'm not getting acupuncture, then how do I tell them what works? So I do get regular acupuncture and I love it. I've never had it done. I'm very What? Curious. I have a give- very serious phobia of needles. So well, there was only one way to get phobias. Yeah, I was like, are you a storm chaser or not? Travis? Oh wow, I walked right into this? that. Wow, I walked into that. I think we could get you over a phobia. For me, it, I love the way it makes me feel. So so I do that. What else, what am I doing? I I work out so Okay. So I went and got rolfing about a year and a half ago where they do this deep structural integration. It's like deep body therapy massage, but it's not really massage, you know, because they're realigning your body, but it's very expensive. So I couldn't do the whole set of 10, but during it, I think I made it to three or four sessions and he said, Oh, you shouldn't work out. He's like, I believe that working out is really kind of bad for the body because it's not natural. You should only do functional. So I like went on the search for functional fitness. You know what I mean? Like, what can I do that's functional? Cause I want to treat my body well, but I also know I need to move to hold on to that's part of health is like holding on to muscle. And, and in Chinese medicine, they believe that you should have a little weight on you as you age, because if you're very slender, it makes the aging process really, really difficult, which makes sense. And so I was like, I need to put on some weight. So I did put on weight, but uh, I noticed that it was just like fat, you know, 15 pounds of fat. So I was like, I wonder like, how do I turn this to muscle? I went on a journey of trying to do that. Now the most recent thing I'm doing is like this kind of dance stuff that I really like. And it's like dance and like small, small weight training. And it really suits my body and my, uh, what kind of gets me off. I like being in a state of flow. So I watch this woman and you, she doesn't talk and you, you watch a video of her for an hour and you just move like her. And I, I really like that because it's kind of meditative. And then I have a yin yoga practice and I have a meditation practice, a daily meditation practice. And then I also invert every day on my inversion table. I do a vibration plate. You know, those plates that you stand on Dave Asprey. I have one of those. Do those um, work? I see one in the cafe in LA and I'm just so intrigued by it. You sh- Have you got on it? I did. It shook me up, but I'm like, I, I can't tell what's happening because every inch, every cell of my body is vibrating right now. I mean, if you like it, then do it. Um, what else do I do? I hang from a bar and this is all stuff I try to do daily. I'm on a new, the newest kick I have that I started today is three liters. I only do two liters and I'm upping it to three of water, three liters of water a day. But that's like my, I always bring in new challenges. You guys know me like every month or two, I'll like start a new challenge. So I'm doing this with a friend so that we can keep each other accountable. My diet's pretty just intuitive now because I've tried so many different things. I don't really eat anything processed, no fried, you know. I make almost all my own food. I like my greens. 
I do a green juice every day. I definitely, I do do a vegan protein powder because there's just a chance that I'm not getting enough protein because I'm such a heavy weight trainer. No, I'm just kidding. But I do weight training once a week with Chad Damiani. He's a clown. And so we do weight training. We're not doing it right now with COVID, but normally we do like weight training. I'd like to get maybe weight training twice a week. If you had to pick one of those things that you think affected your energy in a positive way the most, which one would you pick for somebody to try as their first challenge? If, if, I, if I were to tell you the thing that helps people the most, I believe like, because I, I, I play games in my head where I'm like, what really helps people? Like, I'll like think about it. And I've been to, you guys know, so many retreats and so many, I've done some weird deep dives and I've met people who do all the breath work in the world, but they're still difficult. They're still unhappy. I've met people who have done all the isomers and all the yoga. They're still unhappy. They're still challenging to the people around them. Let's let's put it more blatant terms. Like they're still assholes. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm like, so I'm like, what is the thing that helps you be less of an asshole? It's meditation. It's the only thing in it. You could still be an asshole. You could still be an asshole and meditate. But I worked with this really cool woman named Lulu in a clinic. And she was just like the easiest human being to be around ever that I've ever met. She was really the most, one of the most presence, kind of like an Eckhart Tolle kind of energy, you know, where you're like, oh, you're really this present. This is not an act. She meditates like four to five hours a day. Anytime there's a down moment, she just almost like locks in and it's like closes her eyes and meditates. And then when the world needs her, she opens her eyes and she is ready for the world. You know, she's not less plugged in because she meditates. She's more plugged in. And then she's energetically reading all the patients that we were seeing because she was just like, you're so stressed, you know, and that's the source of most people. I mean, I work in a clinic and I cannot tell you how much the source of people's pain and suffering is so much related to the fact that they can't change their thoughts or emotions. Their thoughts and emotions are driving them, but they're not driving them. You know, like they're out of control with them. They're very honest about that. They're like, I just can't stop thinking about this. I can't stop worrying. I can't, I'm so, so afraid all the time. They're, these are different stories. You know, I'm just so stressed. I don't know. I just feel angry all the time. Like people who are like, I don't know what's going on. And it's like, there must be an emotional mental link, you know, where you keep the, the motor going by like, yes, yes, yes. Is, it is a scary world or yes, yes, yes. That is something that should make me angry. And you just stay in these cycles of whatever it is. And it starts to tax your body. So I still, even though I'd love to say like drink water, you know, it's meditation <laughs> and it's one of the hardest practices to start, but I have a secret, but I have to charge you if I tell you. Ah, damn it. Wait, how, wait, how much? <laughs> oh, let me tally up my bills. We have you on record saying, don't even try to give me money. So nice try, Jet. <laughs> yeah, you do have me on record. You play it back to me instantly. I'm like, ah. so Here's a trick to starting to meditate because I've tried a lot of different styles of meditation. You know, I've, you guys know, seventh grade, I started my meditation journey. And, um, and this was the way for me to lock in a meditation practice. And now it's like a weird day. If I don't get to meditate, I feel off. Here's how you start. I think it's great to have a little eye cover. There's one called, it's called Mindfold. You can get it on Amazon for like 12 bucks. So I put on this blindfold. This is how I started my practice where I now am um, hooked. And I laid in my bed for five minutes and I set a timer. You can get a really cheap timer. I, I have one that's called progressive alarm clock. And it's, so it's whatever time you set it to, it comes in very soft and it's like bong, bong. So it pulls you out of your meditation very gently. And you want that when you eventually are kind of meditating deep, you want to come out slowly because there's a whole idea in transcendental meditation where if you come up very abruptly, you can get a headache. 
And I found that to be true. Creating a sacred environment and coming out softly is going to help you carry whatever it is that you're honing that energy into the world. So those are the two tricks as far as the, and normally I don't like to have, you don't have to buy anything. Like you could figure out a way to do this without these little gadgets, but I mean, altogether, I think it's $15. And then you lay in your bed for five minutes and you do that for, I don't know, a month. And then you're going to find that you might want to do 10 minutes. Then you're going to find that you might want to do 20. Then you're going to find that maybe you could lay on a yoga mat on the floor. I prefer yoga mat on the floor actually, because it lengthens out my back. And I also put this little roll, like roll towel underneath my neck because I don't have a much of a curve in my neck. So now I'm, I'm, you know, doing my chiropractor exercises while I'm meditating, which is just putting that curve into my lobe. But if you have a normal neck, you could just put a little small pillow under your head and then you do it on a yoga mat. Then slowly, a month later, maybe you sit up. But I would not even approach a 20-minute sitting practice personally without incrementally starting to crave it. You always want to have a practice in your life that you're like, I can't wait to do it. Mm. And if you can't wait to get there, then, then like you're, you're good. You're gold. But to get to that place where you can't wait to get there, you have to have it be so small that your ego can't get involved. You have to be like, for five minutes, your ego's like, it's not even worth it. And you're like, well, if it's not worth it, ego, then we might as well do it. And it's like, okay, whatever. So that your ego won't come in and tell you, like, oh, this is what we should think about this. So you create the practice. And, you know, I believe a practice is kind of everything. So you take yourself out of the equation. What your thoughts on it are don't matter. It's just part of your day. But if it's so easy for you, you know, then do it. If it's so, you know, you say it's so easy, then do it for 30 days and see if you can do it for 30 days. Five minutes in bed with an eye, with a cover on your eye and the alarm set. I'm telling you, even in five minutes, when that little ding comes on, you start coming back into the world. You're like, oh, and you feel refreshed. And then 10 minutes. Oh, now it's like, man, every time that goes off, I'm like, man, I wish it was longer. There's never, ever been a time where my little alarm doesn't go off. And I wish that I had been in my meditation longer. Never once. And I remember that feeling for the next time when I'm like, do I have time to meditate? Because every once in a while I'll go, do I have time to meditate? And I'll go, has there ever been a time where you want to come out of it? And I'm like, no. I'm sold. And it's called the Jet Evolith Method of Meditation. And it costs $10,000 an hour. <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> Jet Evolith Meditation Method for Meditation.com. And, um, can you spell yeah. that? Can you spell that for our <laughs> listeners? <laughs> yes. J E T E V L E T H method M E N T H of meditation. So that's for me was like, Oh my God, I can't believe it took me this long, but you know, I bought yoga, I, I bought expensive mats to sit on, you know, like if I buy a nice $50 mat, this was 10 years ago. I was like, then I'll sit on it. I'll tell you, it doesn't always work. It, the body leads us through life and the pleasure of the body is the strongest horse you have. So figure out how to give it pleasure by like slowly giving it one you know, piece of candy and being like, see, don't you like this? And the body's like, I do like laying down with a, like an, a blindfold on it. Like, it does feel good. And who doesn't have five minutes? Like you're an asshole if you don't have five minutes. You're a baby. Baby's even worse than an asshole. And babies come out of assholes. That's how they come into the world. I really like, I've found for me, because I'm, I'm like you laying in bed makes total sense to me because I really like lying on my back and putting my feet up in sort of a restorative rest situation because it, my body feels 
nothing. So I'm, then I'm not having to worry about, you know, if I, you know, if my spine is straight or if I'm comfortable or itchy or whatever it is. Instead, it's just like the most inhibited I can be. I just like let go of my body. Yes. You should take ownership. Remember when I said like with actors, I want them to own their ideas. So if you're like, I have a pose that works really good for me, then you own it. No one told you to do that pose. So do, if you love laying in a hammock, lay in a hammock. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to run a warm bath or a hot bath and shut off all the lights in the bathroom. It's dark, it's black. And to lay in the bathtub with it, with it being black. I mean, that might be dangerous. So I'm not promoting this for listeners because I don't want to be responsible for your death but really I do because it's going to be a blast. (laughs) So laying in a hut, like a warm, like a pretty like close to a little bit around body temperature, that's like your own cheap isolation tank, those deprivation tanks. Because like we're all living on a budget, right? So I go sit, shut off the lights, lay in my bathtub. That counts as a meditation practice for me if, if I wanted to. I mean, in a dream world, I do two a day. That's putting me in a really, really good mood. That's making me less of an asshole. How do you feel like your meditation changed your performance and your presence on stage? Did you notice a shift? Yeah. It changes you fundamentally. So like it totally changes you. I remember one time Sharna pulled me aside or we were just t- chatting at the theater. This is eight, probably 84 years ago, 85, 85 years ago. And she was like, I, I've been practicing yoga for a while. And she goes, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on in your performance. Every time I see you, you just get better. Is it the yoga? (laughs) So earnest. She was so earnest about it. Like, what is it? Because I think she had seen, I'm not saying I was, this is less of a comment on myself and more a comment on, I think so many other people figure out tricks and then they stay in those tricks forever. Because I've never, I don't actually think I'm a good improviser. I really believe this a hundred percent. I don't think I'm a good improviser. Neither do we. Okay, good. I just think most people are terrible. That's what I believe. And that's pretty dark. (laughs) But it's like, I don't think I'm that good. I'm not even close to where I want to be. But I think there's a lot of people out there who are playing it too safe or they're they're playing into their tricks because it feels it feels less scary. And I'm like, you could be because I believe everyone can be magic and everyone can tap into their genius. But I'm like, but you gotta be brave. It's not, a, it's not a capability thing. I see it with my dog all the time that with her, it's like, what is a smart dog? A smart dog is a determined dog. Like she just works and works and works at something until she figures it out and other dogs give up. And I'm like, oh, I don't even know if I believe in intelligence anymore. You know, I just believe in determination. And I think that for me, I was like, I think I'm just a weird determined person so that I go, well, that worked in improv. So I can't do that anymore. Cause like, I know that works now. And so I think the yoga and the meditation is deeply related to that because, you know, what do you do at the end of a yoga class? You lay in Shavasana that prepares you for meditation. And that Shavasana is so important to me. It was from the very beginning. I love Shavasana. I live for it. And that's why I have, I have mostly a laying down yoga practice, uh, meditation practice, which most people don't, but I do because um, it helps with like decompressing my spine and it works for me. I don't fall asleep during uh, meditation. If you do, generally they encourage you to sit up, but because I'm not a sleeper, laying is the right meditation for me. And I had to find that on my own. And I, I found that part of the dilemma for me with sitting is I was in so much pain because of the compression on my spine that I couldn't, I couldn't descend. And so I had to like own meditation and figure out how I meditated. I think once I started going into med- deep meditations and Shavasana, 
I realized that I was able to overcome the fear of dying. <laughs> and so then I was able to have many deaths in my art, which is, I was like, okay, that's the end of that phase. I can't do that anymore. Cause that's all that is, is a death. And so I think Sharna was right of like, what is it? The yoga? I'm like, yeah, I think it is on some level. I really love the idea of little deaths and letting go whatever, you know, maybe you were going through a phase of art and also the idea that you find what works for you because you're not, you know, putting that on anyone else. You're just like, these are the things that like helped me and like helped me find my voice. And I just really enjoy that. This has been very lovely. I feel like I could, well, thank you. I don't want to speak for Travis and Pish, but I feel like I could talk to you forever. Agreed. Yeah. I feel pretty good about that. Is there anything else that you want to throw out there? No, I think, I think we've, I've said a lot maybe too much and I apologize. <laughs> if people want to stay up to date or get involved with your clown program thing that you're doing once this is pandemic is all over, is there a place people can go for that right now? Yeah, I think the easiest place is Clown Church LA. So uh, Clown Church LA on Instagram is probably the easiest way to contact me. I'm actually, I don't, I don't have Instagram on my phone, but I try to check it like once a week on my computer. I also have a Wix site, but I don't even know honestly what it is. So I think every, if you go to the Clown Church LA, it kind of directs you to my website and that's an easy way to find it. Awesome. If you're not on Instagram, um, you could do, you could email me directly at comedyintensive at gmail.com. Comedyintensive at gmail. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jet. Great. Yay. Yes. Thank you so much, so Jet. This has been you. wonderful. Thank you, guys. What did I say? Didn't I say she's the best? She's just dropping truth bombs about life left and right. Uh, since this interview, I've been meditating more. And, you know, it's all good. It, every time I talk to her, I'm like, it's all good, man. Just make art and enjoy the beauty of life. <laughs> and I just, she's such a walking example of that. I just want to squeeze her cheeks. Anyway, thanks, Jet, for being here. Thank you for listening, everyone. And um, thanks for being on this journey with us as we try to be less of improv babies. Please subscribe, rate, review, check out our Instagram at stormchaserimprov and if you'd like to be a sponsor you can contact us through our website stormchaserimprov.com or just you know send a message to uh, talk shop or tell the boys how handsome they are we are down for it all peace thank you for listening to the stormchaser improv podcast show <laughs>